Hello, hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper, one of your hosts. And I'm Aaron Maté, the second host. How's it going, everybody? And remember to go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com to subscribe and get bonus content. And that bonus content includes an extended interview every week, as well as our Thursday throwdown feature, which is your midweek dose of media madness, where we react to media clips that we watch so that you don't have to. And uh, hopefully you have a good time. Because we, 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 we have a good time. We suffer while we watch them. But then we have fun when we um, uh, commiserate. You know, the, the Thursday throwdown comes with a GTG, which stands for Great Time Guarantee. It does come from, yeah, it's we true. We guarantee you a great time. It's a TTGTG, a Thursday third and guaranteed. Wait, what was it? A TTGTG, a Thursday third and great time guarantee. Great time guarantee, right? That's what yep. it is, right? TTGTG, mm-hmm. Thursday third and great time guarantee. Yeah. Don't steal that because we patented that. We're on our way to the patent office right now. And what's cool is we've also inserted a clause where if you don't have a great time, then there's another clause which says that. If you don't have a great time, then that's your problem because you're not you're obviously not a very fun person. So the guarantee is that you have to be it assumes you're you're like a fun person. If you're not a fun person, right. then you don't get your money back because exactly. it's your fault that you don't have a great time. Right. It's a good time guarantee for good timers. Exactly. G T G G T. Yeah. T T G T G T G. Yeah. So sign up for that at usefulitystuff.com. Slash usefulitys.locals.com. And if you try to get out of our great time guarantee, we will sue you, actually. Yeah, so yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah. Anti slap. Anti slap. All right. All right. All right. Four basic food groups. Yeah. Let's get to our four basic food groups. Uh, for Democrats Suck, we have an interesting interaction um, between climate change activists and Kamala Harris. Let's see what happened when they interrupted a speech she gave. Vice President Kamala Harris, we are in a climate emergency and in the middle of the midst of a climate emergency, 80 people have died. So there is Climate Defiance, an activist with Climate Defiance. And as Climate Defiance tweets out, big news, we profoundly disrupted a speech by U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris as we cried out about the tragic deaths in Hawaii and condemned her fossil fuel crimes. Kamala stood there and laughed. Horrendous. We deserve and we need actual climate leaders. My favorite part of that clip in which he points out the hypocrisy in terms of Biden's broken promises and the fact that he's actually drilled more federal land than Donald Trump has, is how she responds to it. She's like, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. As if they don't know that, or as if the protest isn't based on the premise of interrupting her. Did she think she'd get an applause for reclaiming her time? (laughs) It was just so self-congratulating and uh, inappropriate. And of course, they're not declaring a a, a climate emergency, despite... uh, 
Joe Biden's claims to the contrary. So let's take a look at this clip of Biden being asked about declaring a climate emergency. Mr. President, you call climate change a code red for humanity. The World Health Organization said it will cause an additional quarter of a million deaths a year starting in 2030. Are you prepared to declare a national emergency with respect to climate change? I've already done that. National emergency, we've conserved more land. We've moved in, we've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. We've passed a $368 billion climate control facility. We're, we're, we're moving. It's the, it is the existential threat to humanity. So you've already declared that national emergency. Practically speaking, yes. Yeah. Practically speaking. Practically speaking doesn't count when declaring an emergency comes with certain policies and practically declaring an emergency doesn't come with certain policies. Just to speak to that hypocrisy that the, the climate protester uh, outlined, it's important to remember that federal data shows that the Biden administration uh, has outpaced Trump's administration in terms of drilling permit approval, um, which is just really shameful. But so what do we have? We have Biden not declaring a climate emergency, but don't worry, guys, he's very upset about Hawaii. Let's check out his response to Hawaii. Biden tweeted, as residents of Hawaii mourn the loss of life and devastation taking place across their beautiful home, we mourn with them. Like I've said, not only our prayers are with those impacted, but every asset we have will be available to them. We're laser focused on getting aid to survivors, including critical needs assistance, a one-time $700 payment per household offering relief during an unimaginably difficult time. So guys, they're throwing everything that they have at this, at this tragedy. You get $700 once if you're affected. And just to give you a sense of where Biden prioritizes spending money, let's take, take, take a look at this uh, tweet from Austerity is Theft, uh, which contrasts the $700 to the amount of money that the Biden administration was going to compensate some Havana syndrome victims, and that was up to $187,000. Inspired by Biden, I'm going to practically declare that you have a good time guarantee if you watch this show. Practically declaring there that. There you go, yeah. I'm not giving you the guarantee, but I'm practically giving you the guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. So... Case close and Case problem closed, solved. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. And you know, another contrast to Biden's uh, spending priorities, he just unveiled a new spending package for for Ukraine, for the Ukraine proxy war. And that was the one that came out of the accounting error where the Pentagon realized, oh, guess what? We have more money than we thought because we made an accounting error. So here's right. some more money for the military industrial complex. Yeah. Go crazy, Ukraine. Go buy yourself something nice. Yeah. And, you know, just the stories coming out of Hawaii are horrendous. And it's another reminder of all the things that could be done at home rather than spending all this money, not, not just on the Ukraine war, but overall, the Pentagon budget is just insane. And yet, these are the things that always get neglected. And we have to, you know, uh, we always have to pretend as if there's not enough to help these people when, if Biden cared about domestic priorities, that's what he could be doing. Right. Well, I'm glad. I'm sure the people in Hawaii take a lot of solace, find a lot of solace in the fact that emergency has been practically declared. Mm -mm. All right. For Republicans, suck, first, check out this article in the New York Times. This is the headline A global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul. So, this is recently from the New York Times. And the people in this picture are on the left. You have Jody Evans, she's a co founder of the group Code Pink. Next to her is her husband, uh, Roy Singham, who is a tech mogul who made a lot of money 
uh, in business and sold his company. It was called ThoughtWorks and has now been using it to fund nonprofits in the U.S., including Code Pink, which his wife, Jody Evans, co-founded, and other groups like the People's Forum in New York City and other organizations. And what this article in The Times tries to argue is that basically all this is just a conduit for Chinese propaganda. Yeah. Because Roy Singham spends a lot of time living in Shanghai. You look at the actual article, there's zero evidence at all of any kind of Chinese government tie. None. Uh, the closest they come is that like Roy Singham has an office that is adjacent to some other organization that is some sort of tangential tie to China in some way. But really, it's just like a, it's a group in China, basically. And it tries to make the argument that accordingly, Code Pink and all these other groups are really just Chinese assets. And it even suggests that they could be, uh, you know, uh, they could be made to register as foreign agents right. without actually outright asserting it because they actually have no actual no evidence. evidence. It's right. all just sleazy innuendo. Okay. Yeah. So because neocon attacks like this are totally bipartisan, Republican Senator Marco Rubio has made a lot out of this. And he's calling for all these groups, including Code Pink, to be investigated. And this is what he said. Rubio probes funding for organizations that promote CCP agenda in the U.S. And again, this is from Marco Rubio. According to the New York Times, many progressive organizations have received funding from Neville Roy Singham, a leftist U.S. citizen who lives in Shanghai and has ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Yet none of the entities tied to Singham have registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA. The U.S. must enforce its laws more fiercely in the face of foreign adversaries who abuse our open system to advance their malign interests. So Rubio sent Merrick Garland a letter, including a list of nine organizations, including Code Pink, that he wants to see investigated. And this is a good example of how McCarthyism and an overall neocon agenda is totally bipartisan. You have a Republican senator citing a liberal newspaper, the liberal newspaper, the New York Times, to, right. go after leftist, uh, to go after leftist organizations inside the U.S. Yeah, I'm, I hope that the New York Times is proud that they are being used this way, that they are providing um, Marco Rubio with the tools to go after organizations like Code Pink, anti-war organizations. Um, I, I actually, I think it's almost inspiring and helpful because it, it just reveals as you said, Aaron, how incredibly bipartisan the this neocon agenda is. And it has support from the liberal wing and from the reactionary right wing as well. Disgusting. And by the, and by the way, the lead reporter on this New York Times story, former reporter at The Intercept, right. which is a website that I like to make fun of because they're billed as, feel, as fearless and adversarial, but they often prop up government propaganda instead of exposing it. Now, not in all cases, and today we're actually gonna cover a story for our interview about where they did a great story exposing the US role in pushing out the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan. But right. it's an example that, you know, even our best media outlets often produce people that push nothing but government propaganda. And this New York Times article is an example of that. And yeah, you know, it's just so sleazy, but it's this so is, the, you know, in the Russiagate era, this kind of effort to basically paint anyone who challenges U.S. government propaganda as an agent of a foreign power, it's been totally normalized. And that's what makes it very easy for liberals at the New York Times 
and neocon Republicans like Marco Rubio to team up together. Right. Uh, I people if people want to hear a more detailed discussion about this, uh, I talk about it with Eugene Purrier on the Katie Halper show. We go through the article and we go through the kind of history of McCarthyism and these anti-China talking points uh, and show how really all you have to do to be accused of uh, parroting uh, Chinese government talking points is say things that is that are politically inconvenient for the State Department, the U.S. State Department. It's disgusting. So that is Republican suck. Indeed. Moving on to Isn't That Weird? Isn't That Terrible? Let's go to Isn't That Weird, uh, where we have a an interesting story. Uh, it could have been a terrible, but I think it's just a weird. Let's go to the videotape uh, in Texas, coming out of Texas. Well, a woman from Silsby attacked by both a snake and a hawk that descended on her from above. Well, the attack left her with severe arm injuries and what she's calling a new lease on life. Fox Force, Cindy Ferguson reports. It was like I couldn't believe what was happening. Peggy Jones of Silsby was mowing the back six acres of her home on Tuesday, August 1st, when a snake fell down onto her from above. He was starting to dart at my face and come into my face, and he was striking my glasses. And he just kept on and kept on, and I just couldn't get rid of the snake. And it was just, it was like, I think I went into survival mode. Doan says a hawk then came down and pulled the snake from her arm, but not before leaving severe cuts and puncture wounds. The hawk came down four times to get the snake off of my arm. When I looked down, I had blood all over my clothes. I had blood all over my arm. My arm was torn to shreds. So what's weird about this story, though, I think, is the symbolism. Let's take a look at this tweet, which I thought was a great observation. I don't need any further evidence that Texas belongs to Mexico, but I'll take it. And that's in response to the story about the Texas woman mowing lawn attack by snake and hawk at the same time. Of course, the founding uh, story of Mexico involves a story about a bird and a snake. And it's, of course, on the Mexican flag. So this story may be an unintentional, unwitting call for returning uh, Texas to Mexico. <laughs> I don't think the woman had any idea about that when she came forward. She'd become a Mexican national hero for going yeah. through this terrible ordeal. Yeah. That does sound terrible. Yeah. So that's my, isn't that weird? Isn't that unintentionally me Mexican nationalists? Those two things often go hand in hand. All right. For isn't that terrible, let's go to Iowa, where there was recently a big gathering of Republican presidential hopefuls at the Iowa State Fair. And there was a lot of talk about Donald Trump showing up and to making a quick appearance. But I say the real show stopper scene stealer was vivek ramaswamy who decided to treat the audience to a rendition of eminem's lose yourself loud he opens his mouth but the words won't come out he's joking how everybody's joking now the clocks run out time's up over plow snap back to reality oh there goes gravity oh there goes gravity choke he's so mad but he won't give up that he's he don't matter, he knows his own bags that he's wrote. It don't matter, he's dope. He don't matter, but he's broke. He's so sad that he knows when he goes back to this mobile home. That's when it's back to the lab. The video is so rapid. He better go down to this moment and hope it don't catch him. Lose yourself in the music, the moment you want That was all. All right. Wow. Um, I love how there's a sign in the background that says, like, fireside chats. And this is no fireside chat, everybody. This is a blistering. Fireside rap. 
It's a fireside rap. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I like the one person in the audience who had her fists up in the air. All right. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's what I'd be doing if I was there. Yeah. And, you know, that opening part of the verse where the line is something like the words won't come out of his mouth. Well, Vivek, the words came out of your mouth there because you spit fire. So. Yeah, but they weren't. The thing is, he just disqualified himself in my mind for being president. You know why? Why? Because he a good a good president, a good candidate would have found the karaoke track to that song and rapped over it. Not just merely found the Eminem version and mm -hmm. rapped over it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, he lost my vote because uh, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't creative and he didn't uh, change the lyrics, which he should have done. And he could have taken inspiration from our useful idiots last week, our Thursday throwdown, where I did some work with uh, some Bon Jovi songs, making the, the lyrics more um, appropriate. Well, the category here is, isn't that terrible? And for being so woefully unoriginal, mm -hmm. yeah. Vivek, you were terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was initially inspired by Katie. You're right. There was no creativity. So that's terrible. And yeah. He's out. Yeah. No creativity and poor management. So, yeah. yeah. You think President Trump would have got up there and rapped someone else's lyrics? No, he no would have come up with his own thing. Yeah. Come up with his own thing, right. yeah. Yeah. All right. And that is, isn't that terrible? And those are your four basic food groups. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. For this week's guest, we are joined by Junaid Ahmad. He is a professor who teaches religion, law, and politics in Pakistan. And we are going to be talking about this blockbuster story that just came out from The Intercept showing, based on a leaked cable, that the U.S. pushed for the ouster of Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, who is now imprisoned. And when Khan was ousted in April 2022... He blamed the U.S. and millions of people came out to the streets to support him. And for saying that the U.S. was involved in his ouster, he was mocked, he was derided. But this cable proves him and his supporters to be exactly correct. So we're going to hear from Junaid Ahmad about what's going on in Pakistan and what is the context behind this. So let's go to our guest, Junaid Ahmad. Junaid Ahmad, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you guys. Always been a huge fan of Useful Idiots, and it's a pleasure and honor to be with you today. It's really great to have you. And the news we are discussing is really momentous. The Intercept coming out with a report based on leaked documents from Pakistan showing that the State Department pressured Pakistan to oust its prime minister, Imran Khan, the reason given was described as Imran Khan's aggressively neutral position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the news here uh, is that this confirms an allegation made by Khan and many other people that the U.S. played an instrumental role in his ouster last year. So after covering this story, after talking about it a lot, um, your reaction to seeing this basically confirmed in writing that the U.S. was 
instrumental in pushing for the ouster of Imran Khan. Yes, uh, absolutely, Aaron. As we've discussed several times before as well, uh, this issue that Khan brought up then uh, was uh, mocked and ridiculed by some, but by by and large, the majority of the Pakistani population believed him. Now, this is what we were, what the Intercept revealed, and uh, it's incredible that it's that you get these types of uh, real live documents, cables, because. As I said at the time uh, when when this happened, uh, it's not like the CIA leaves paper trails in writing that we are conducting <laughs> a regime change operation. Uh, we know that often years and years later, we find out about what the exact role of, whether it's CIA, MI6, or whoever, has been in a certain process intervening in uh, through a coup or, or these days through hybrid warfare and color revolutions and so on. So I think that uh, at that time, the majority of the population uh, believed Khan. Now this, what they call the cipher, the, the cable, the diplomatic cable that had come, uh, which, which basically uh, contained the contents of this meeting of an assistant secretary of state in the State Department, um, not Victoria Newland yet. <laughs> she, she talks to the big boys. The, the, but um, so this was uh, Donald uh, Liu, Assistant Secretary of State, meeting with the Pakistani ambassador in the United States. And basically, long story short, just as basically saying that, and just for some background, uh, when the uh, uh, Imran Khan invited, uh, was invited by uh, Putin to come visit him in Russia. And the context of that is very important. It's not like Russia and Pakistan have been uh, best friends forever. In fact, they've been adversaries throughout the Cold War. The, you know, Pakistan was in the U.S. camp, and of course now it's firmly in that camp once again. And so it was a historical adversary. So this was kind of like the first attempt to kind of, uh, of a huge regional, obviously, player, uh, Russia, so they, this was well decided before that Khan will arrive on this date in Russia. And as he arrives uh, there, I mean, I think as soon as, while he's still on the plane, etc., the Russian special military operation or invasion, whatever you want to call it, happens in, in the Ukraine. And all of a sudden, while he's in Moscow with Putin, these calls condemn Putin right there, right there now. Now, I'm not sure if anyone ha would have the courage to go there and do that to Putin on his face while sitting in Moscow. But the thing is that even when he returned from that visit, he had European capitals openly telling him, OK, now you're back in your country. Please condemn what Russia has done. And he gave a speech, kind of giving you the chronology. He gave a speech in which, which was then very popularized, particularly in the global south, that we are not your slaves. Um, we don't. We're not just going to do whatever you tell us to do. We are friends with Russia, United States, China, Europeans. Uh, we are friends with basically everyone, and we are not part of any alliance. Uh, and, and, and after that, he also goes on, well, you know, when we talk about you know, occupation of Kashmir or Israeli occupation of Palestine, who listens to us? So he goes on and on in the speech. And so this meeting takes place the next day. The chronology is very important. This meeting takes place the next day in Washington, in which the Pakistani ambassador is summoned. And 
and he's, he's pretty much told that if you uh, it, this aggressive neutrality that it seems to be coming from the prime minister, indicating that, look, this is Imran Khan and the rest of the Pakistani establishment, both the military and the political elites, etc., don't are, are not really on board with Imran, what Imran Khan has done, which is aggressive neutrality, whatever the heck that means. And so the, he says that, well, you know, this is uh, will cause serious isolation and concern here. And, and, and there may be, you know, consequences for this. Not maybe, there will be consequences. And, but, and here's the interesting point. If uh, in the next few days, uh, you know, Khan can effectively be pushed out the way, removed from power, this dent in our relationship can, uh, can go away and all will be forgiven. Now forgiven for what? Who knows? But that, that, that's that's essentially what what that the, the cable or the cipher, as the Pakistanis call it, uh, uh, was was about. And this got obviously. I mean, they got back to Pakistan. Now this is obviously an internal uh, cable, so it's not like Khan could just show it to the public right away. Uh, but they held a national security meeting. They issued a march or demarche or a response saying that this is totally against diplomatic protocol uh, to do this type of thing. But in that cable, it said that through if the vote of no confidence succeeds and Khan gets out of power, we'll forgive you. There was no motion even at that point being tabled for a vote of no confidence vote. So it's kind of like instructions how to do this to not make it look like a direct coup, but try to do it quote-unquote, constitutionally. Now, we have to understand, there was a, 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 a when Khan, um, Khan was pretty much against, Khan's political party, the Pakistan Tariqi Insaf, the Movement for Justice, was against a 13-party coalition, including the two dynastic uh, political parties, the major political party, the Pakistan Muslim League of the Sharif family, and the Pakistan People's Party of the Bhutto family, which happened to be the two most wealthiest families in the country by chance. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, so, so this 13-party coalition, they all come together. Um, we all know that, that this is certainly being facilitated by the chief of the army staff. In Pakistan, our, the viewers should know the army, and specifically the chief of army staff, has always been the most powerful player in, in Pakistani political life. And... It, this was all facilitated by by the army and, of course, Washington. And they all come. A lot of members of his own party start to defect who have, then we have images going to the U.S. embassy, paid a lot of money, so on and so forth. And he, he barely loses the vote of no confidence. And so that was what basically happened then, uh, Aaron. I mean, I, I, this is what the focus is on right now, and it's very important that we got a hold of this document. Um, according to The Intercept, um, two journalists who had gotten a copy uh, have been killed, basically. Actually, to just today, we have confirmation of the second one uh, who had copy, yeah, who was missing for uh, a couple of months now. Uh, I, Pretty much, I think we got a confirmation that he's been killed as one. The first one was all the way hunted down in Kenya to be killed uh, by basically Pakistani intelligence. And so, uh, so this this was there. And so now Intercept got it from someone from the military, 
who obviously, as I've said throughout the year, Khan, one of the most, uh, I mean, there's so many, uh, grie- uh, there's so many grievances of the military elite and of the United States against Khan. But of course, uh, one, one of them um, is, is precisely that, you know, Khan, for the first time in the history of the Pakistani military, the civilian prime minister is more popular um, amongst the soldiers and the junior and mid-ranks of the officer corps in the military itself than the chief of army staff. And it's, and it's no surprise why that's the case. All Khan for the past, the, throughout the war on terror years, all he spoke about is, is yeah, this is immoral and counterproductive. And now the spillover effect in the Pakistan that, w- that it was having and the pressure by the United States on Pakistan to send its uh, own troops into areas in the northwestern territories that it had never gone to. These are called uh, FATA, federally administered tribal areas bordering Afghanistan. It's kind of an ironic or an oxymoron because actually they're not federally administered. They're actually quite autonomous areas. And a massive military assaults, repeated assaults with the... Uh, Killings already happening through drone attacks, but then those Pakistani military operations, and much more than that, hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions, displaced. Which later on, when this actually happened, then kind of you know, you know progressive elements started to speak. Oh no, this this crisis happened. You know, Khan. Uh, you know, I think in Aeronautics, really, right from the beginning, uh, we had people like. Um, uh, we had uh, Code Pink come, uh, Medea Benjamin, Kathy Kelly, all kind of, you know, uh, all of these great, you know, role models and mentors. They came to march to areas in the northwest of Pakistan where the press was not allowed to go, uh, etc. They couldn't see the quote unquote collateral damage happening from all of this. And so they went there and you know, Han was doing all of this. So. One thing that uh, that I wanted to emphasize is that while this specific cable and the issue of Russia and Ukraine uh, is, of course, incredibly I- important right now, the vendetta against Khan is is goes back a long, long time, right from basically the beginning of the war on terror in 2001. You have an article, a recent article, um, where you criticize the left for kind of doubting um, what Khan was saying before uh, and for not standing with Khan. And we actually have a clip. I want to show a clip of someone and have you react to it. Uh, Someone appearing on Democracy Now! to kind of uh, reject what Khan was saying. Now, this is uh, Tuba Syed. To begin with, I feel like uh, this is probably the first time in Pakistan that a prime minister has been constitutionally removed from his position. Uh, and I think that's that's particularly important to remember that in the history of Pakistan, we've seen multiple prime ministers removed from their positions without a constitutional process. Uh, it's usually been done by military intervention. So it's, it's definitely a, a good step forward in terms of democracy in Pakistan, that this was not done through a military dictatorship uh, or military intervention, but done through a vote of no confidence, which went through the parliament or the National Assembly itself. Um, As far as his own allegations are concerned regarding this being US-backed, frankly, Khan hasn't presented any kind of substantial evidence, at least to the public. 
which confirms his, um, you know, his allegations. We have uh, no evidence uh, of anything that he's alleging right now. Um, so, uh, you know, as long as he doesn't provide a solid evidence or, or a testimony or any kind of document, it's very hard to say that what he's alleging is true. I mean, he literally waved a piece of paper in the air saying this is a letter for, uh, that I've gotten, which uh, speaks about the U.S. involvement in my removal. And beyond that, we, we know nothing. Uh, so it's very difficult to say for us right now that whatever he's alleging is actually true. Now, I don't know if that guest has updated her stance now that that document has been published. Like I said in the first place, uh, first of all, in terms of from the American side, um, it's kind of uh, laughable to expect them to try to leave some open paper trail of exactly what they're, what they're doing in, <laughs> in another country. And from the Pakistani side, now this is a, an official document. Before Han uh, even got, you know, an access uh, to to this cable, um, I mean, he knew the cable. He didn't have access to the exact piece of paper. But of course, they had immediately a National Security Council meeting, in which they sent a response, the march, to saying that this what you know this Assistant Secretary of State has done is completely against diplomatic protocol to you know speak like that in the internal politics of Pakistan. And um, he did not uh, reveal this because, again, this is a kind of an official document. You know, these things are quite uh, being discussed in the U.S. these days as well. But this was an official document. He sends it. Uh, they have the National Security Council meeting on. He sends it to Chief Justice, to the Supreme Court Chief Justice. I mean, he's, he's taking all the appropriate steps. Right. He does not want to speak about it itself. You know, it's not like a public document. It's a, but of course, it is taken as a threat. And so he's trying to do all the right things that he doesn't. But when he sees that it's very clear that actually something is going on again, like I said, his his uh, response to the European Union's demand with that uh, he condemned the Russian invasion, followed by the next day, the meeting between this. Uh, Donald Lewis is in Secretary of State and the Pakistani ambassador in the U.S. And the third day, the cobbling up of 13 political parties, two of the parties that have hated each other and played musical chairs over the past 30 years in looting and plundering the country happens. And, 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 and they try, try to get defectors from Khan's party, etc. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean... I don't, I don't think it can get any clearer than that. And of course, that can only happen. I mean, these, these, most of these politicians are probably not even intelligent enough to, 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 to know how to do that. Uh, that was uh, green-lighted, I mean, in fact, probably orchestrated by the chief of army staff. This is what you have to do now, and this is the way it's going to be done. And, and by now, that's become crystal clear that it has been the military high command that has been doing everything, that has been guiding everything with the full connivance and cooperation of this, what's called the PDM, uh, the Pakistan Democratic Movement, I ironic, of uh, 13 political parties uh, that just now uh, dissolved the National Assembly for quote unquote elections, which we don't know when will be held. Uh, and I think that's, that's the objective to postpone it as long as possible um, so that either uh, Khan 
I mean, right, we can get into what his situation is right now, but the, the, his political party may lose support, may even be disqualified as a terrorist political party or something or the other. So they want to make sure that they have enough time to make sure that Khan and, and his political party don't have much uh, space in, in the political spectrum and that um, and that they can do whatever rigging they need to do, which usually happens in Pakistani elections. Let's talk about Khan's current situation. He's now imprisoned. He is banned from running in the upcoming elections. Um, how is he being treated? And what is the state of the massive protest movement that came out, you know, masses of people after he was ousted in April 2022? Those videos that came out of those massive crowds defending him, is that still happening now? Or are people just too intimidated by the government? Yeah, it's very difficult to speak about this because um, this type of uh, the, the, the level and the extent of repression that t took place uh, just in a matter of weeks and months um, since uh, they first tried to arrest Khan. I mean, it wasn't even an arrest. It was an abduction from the Supreme Court by by military rangers while he's coming to every case that he has he's making trips back and forth going to the court and so he was abducted and and at that time where still maybe uh the supreme court justice was kind of listened to and he said that no this was uh, an illegal arrest and abduction and so on and that he should be released immediately he was then released from that and i think that at at, at when when that happened uh, the, I mean, millions of people that had been demonstrating since the ouster of Imran Khan in April of 2022, like week after week, uh, I mean, in, in week two or three rallies in throughout the country, because in some ways, Imran Khan's political party is the first national political party in the country, by which I mean that in all, in all of the provinces, Pakistan is deeply divided in terms of uh, the, the provinces and the dominant influence of, say, the province of, the, which is the largest province of Punjab, uh, over the uh, smaller provinces. Some people even call it a kind of a neo-colonial relationship between that province and the other provinces. Khan's, and so the other two dynastic political parties that have existed in, in the country, one is largely based in the province of Sindh, and the other one was based in Punjab. And of course, the, the Punjab one, the Sharif family, and Shabazz Sharif was just the prime minister, just now dissolved the National Assembly, they controlled Punjab. And so I think our, the viewers need to take a perspective. So these kind of heavily dynastic, uh, rich, filthy rich political parties that have bought off not just ordinary people, judges, generals, etc. And so the generals have the guns, they have the money. So here comes Khan with his political party in, in, in 97. Uh, and again, I mean, for, for just some history, uh, Khan was a, a, a cricket player. He was a cricket sportsman. He led Pakistan to its, its World Cup uh, championship in 1992. After that, he basically effectively became just like a philanthropist. All he would do, he, he didn't think um, he could do much else. Um, so all he did because of the aura of Imran Khan, etc., was basically go around the world, particularly in the United States and in the UK, and also in Pakistan as well, 
generate as much fundraising as he could and, and build, invest in schools. He built, we, we used to say in Asia, maybe in the world, I don't know, the uh, first free cancer hospital named after his late mother, um, Shokatan Memorial Hospital, which now has several branches, schools and universities. And so that's how he found himself useful. But the the analysis that we come that we know very quickly is that of course this you know as Saint Augustine says charity is no substitute for justice withheld right and so he finally realized that you know this is a political order a system that actually needs to be confronted uh, in order for real systemic change uh, all over the country and so he enters politics in ninety six and ninety seven. Um, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's very popular. If we, if we had a presidential system in Pakistan, one person, one vote, <laughs> you know, from 96 to right now, Imran Khan would win hands down. It's a parliamentary system. He has to get other uh, clowns and characters on board as well. And, uh, and, and, and Khan is not, a, he was never a politician. He, did, he didn't know how to do these things. Anyways, so it's, it starts from there, and he builds the, uh, the political party. Initially, for the first one or two elections uh, in the early 2000s, he only wins his own, one seat just in, in parliament, his own seat. Then, after um, the fall of Musharraf, and again, the merry-go-round between the two political dynasties, and again, no difference, literally, from... I mean, people, and it's sad, they then... Um, have nostalgia for the Musharraf military dictatorship era when these political parties come in power, and that and that's been the that's been the sad tragedy of the country throughout that civilian rule and military rule. Even though we talk about the uh, the you know unacceptable levels of military involvement in political life in Pakistan, particularly the military high command I'm talking about and the army chief, at the same time. The, the, what we've been cursed with is that we've had civilian politicians that have effectively uh, been uh, the same, uh, utterly corrupt and repressive of, of, of freedom of speech free in the media, assembly, and so on and so forth. So the, for the ordinary Pakistani, when actually Musharraf, just one example, when Musharraf came in 1999, no one was on the streets you know, trying to defend. It's kind of like in, in Niger, what just happened. Uh, you know, no one's on the streets they're trying to defend Sharif. So, so this was the first time, and I've emphasized this a lot, you had tens of millions, even though, I mean, it's not like Khan had the most impressive uh, period of governance. It wasn't. I mean, COVID was a big factor as well. And, and of course, lots of other criticism can, can be leveled as well. He, I mean, he did take an IMF loan, but the country was in dire straits much before him. Um, that's on, on the one hand in terms of economics and, and in terms of kind of militancy and so on. This is, a, I mean, the people that he comes in 2018-19, this is a problem, as I've emphasized, you know, like a broken record, that goes all the way back to the 1980s. All of these groups and all of the Pakistani governments are, you know, famous daughter of the East, the de Democrat, you know, may God bless her soul, she was assassinated, Benazir Bhutto. When she was in power in government, all of these politicians were considered in was how much money can they plunder? And when she was in power and her husband, Zardari, was the investment minister, corrupt as anything, later on became president when she was assassinated. Who knows who assassinated her? But the thing is that the 
it was at that time that the Pakistani military was directly supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan to take power. They could care less what's going on on the national. So they, there's often this the term that was put on Khan that he was just a puppet of the military, etc. And it's, this was a hybrid regime. I mean, whatever that means. But if you want, if it means that you have a civilian prime minister who's completely subservient and will not interfere in the military, which which uh, has always dictated what the foreign policy and national security of the of the country will be, then everything that preceded Khan was precisely that was hybrid regime. And what we've had for the past uh, now what uh, now sixteen months. Has has been like the ultimate hybrid regime of, of of civilians and military. But I'm sorry, I've gone on on this. But responding to I mean, now it's so clear uh, that and 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 I was saying that it's not like Khan immediately he got the cable and went to the public. He was trying his best to kind of go through all the protocols for an official document uh, for the government. But at that point, uh, the generals that have gotten their billions over the years, whether it was in the war in Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan in the 1980s, or it was the war on terror in, the, in Afghanistan in, in, this, uh, in this past 20 years, they've gotten billions from the U.S. and they're not going to let go of that. And so, uh, so it was clearly orchestrated uh, by uh, probably a slightly more intelligent people than the, than the political clowns. Um, in, in the State Department and, and the, the military high command, specifically General Badra, uh, but a few of his uh, top brass cohorts as well. You say that this is, you have a great quote in a recent piece that you wrote, and let me know if it's safe to quote from this, because uh, one of the issues here is that there's been a lot of uh, repression and uh, blowback, as you pointed out, against people who have spoken out. You write, ultimately, the left with which I've always identified has facilitated not merely the return of the ancien regime of kleptocratic politicians and an all-powerful military establishment, but the most fascist face of these two forces that the country has ever witnessed. So what makes this iteration the most fascist? Well, I mean, I think that if in terms of uh, atrocities um, abroad, I mean, although it was still... A domestic situation. I mean, the the type of brutality, and which I can I'll get into, that we've experienced now inside Pakistan, can only be compared to what the West when there was a Pakistan that was divided into West Pakistan and East Pakistan that won its liberation in 1971 to become Bangladesh. That type of brutality that that was engaged in there. That's all that we can remember in terms of you know sexual assault. Uh, you know, jailings, torturing, indefinite de detentions, um, killings, anyone, no charges, no legal system functioning, nothing. So the, the only time, like, really, to this extent, we can remember, during the period of General Ziaulak, it was bad uh, for, you know, those 10 years. But this level of, uh, I don't think it was even experienced then. So I think that um, in terms of, in 2023... <laughs> In, like I say, that in the fifth largest country in the world, uh, nuclear armed, etc., for this to happen in the entire country, this type of, and again, we're talking about the uh, uh, the repression of dissent of tens of millions by a military. So you can imagine how much force 
the Pakistani military has had to engage in, not just against the civilian politicians, but against so many of the soldiers and junior mid-rank officers that it is just either um, uh, put in jail, detained, or disappeared uh, that were supportive of Khan. So it's it's something like, I mean, it's something, as I mentioned Aaron earlier, something out of a movie. It's like surreal that you can't even, uh, because it all of a sudden comes. This was like the, this was like the ultimate plan. Actually, probably it wasn't even a plan because they thought they could get rid of Khan much earlier. They did not expect this type of outpouring of support for Khan in the first place. After that, they thought, well, okay, you know, the easy way is now assassination. Two assassination attempts failed. One got him in, in, in the shin, tried to arrest him, etc. The bogus charges, treason, terrorism, etc. Khan has been probably the most, he's always been the most pacifist person. And I often make this point. So you've had a, over a year of rallies and protests of millions of Pakistanis. You know, Pakistan, earlier in the war on terror years, you remember, called the most dangerous place on earth. And these crazy Muslims, if you, if you let them out, they'll be violent and blah, blah, blah. Disciplined protests, zero violence. And so over a year, there's nothing. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the one day they abduct Khan and don't know where he's at, etc. And people protest. And some may have uh, done, you know, damaged property, etc. But it is very, very clear that that day uh, of, 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 of uh, August 5th, that was uh, orchestrated. That, that was uh, orchestrated. Sorry, May 5th. That was orchestrated um, in terms of allowing people, having the military and the regime's own agent provocateurs come within it and storm the military compounds, a, a, a colonel's home in Lahore, all of it. It was entirely orchestrated so that they could actually term uh, Khan, a terrorist, and, and the entire political party as a terrorist political party and disqualify it from politics. They actually equated it to the... Tariqe Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban uh, for this. So everyone knows this is a farce and a joke. But because of the, uh, you know, overwhelming brutal power of the Pakistani military, um, it's very difficult for people inside Pakistan at this particular point to 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 rise and get up. And, 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 and when um, you mentioned uh, the left, I mean, yeah, it, it, it was frustrating because I think that all of the many, many limitations of understandings of, of, of Khan, you know, I mean, uh, you know, for example, Khan, I don't think has ever mentioned the word in probably in his life of imperialism. <laughs> OK, so, you know, he's probably not. This is the, all the guy was saying is, uh, you know, an independent foreign foreign policy and, you know, other countries shouldn't interfere. And even on the war on terror, he kept saying we will be friends with the United States in, in peace, but not in war. Uh, and even in there, you know, his critiques were pretty similar to many of us here. It was both immoral and counterproductive in terms of fueling more militancy, which is precisely what happened. The suicide bombings that started to happen in Pakistan was after Pakistan was pressured to engage in military operations in its own territory by the United States in 2006. We never saw that before. We never had that before. So, uh, so, so I mean, he was proven right, and 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 I think 
the important point here to remember, because there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, well, you know, Khan was on, on good terms with uh, Trump, etc., all of these things. And, you know, or people that don't engage in deeper analysis don't have that understanding. You know, Trump is was a character that, you know, will do anything with anyone, etc. The time, the two times they met, all Trump did was, you know, oh, wow, this great cricketer, etc. Khan is just sitting there quiet, silently. And when a question is asked to him, he's like, yeah, I want to discuss the Kashmir issue. You know, if uh, you know, <laughs> that's what he says. There's nothing. I mean, uh, but Trump just goes on and on about you know Khan and so. And so people have this idea as if you know Trump is controlling American foreign policy and he's going to uh, not at all. He's best friends with Modi and uh, and of course you know we know that the national security state uh, wants to get rid of Trump and didn't like Trump then and doesn't like Trump now. So the and the I but but. The really, really uh, pathetic, I mean, behavior by the U.S. government was happened when the Biden administration came to power, did not engage Pakistan at all. No phone calls uh, to Khan when he was, uh, uh, you know, or, or when Biden came. In fact, Khan had called uh, uh, the United States to, to congratulate. No engagement whatsoever. And to tell you the extent of this uh, incredibly, I mean, b bizarre behavior on the United States. Even when the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan and needed Pakistan's help, there were soldiers literally staying, American soldiers in Pakistani hotels in Islamabad that I was chatting to, etc. It was helping. Still no call to uh, Imran Khan, maybe to the army chief or something. Maybe there was some, we don't know about that, but probably was going on. Still no call to the prime minister, the country that's helping you getting out of, of, the, uh, of, of the country. So it, you, that was when, it, for me, that tells me that was when the national security state is firmly now back in power. You know, Biden, I don't really take seriously, and I don't think he really drives anything. Um, but, and, and they, I've always said this, they have, I don't think they have ever forgiven Khan uh, for his position on the war on terror in 2001 in Afghanistan, etc., and so on. So I think that that period alone in, in, in uh, the, the Biden administration until Khan was ousted, no engagement, even on this question of the neutrality of, of Russia, how should they vote in the UN, Pakistan abstained. And so that, that's what's called aggressive neutrality, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go to a few clips of of Khan. Sorry, I, I go on. No, 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 please, no, no. no, no. Let, let's go to a few clips, though, of Imran Khan, where you know, articulating the kind of views that, as you've laid out, might have gotten him in the U.S. crosshairs and targeted for destabilization and regime change. So, this is a clip of him being interviewed by Julian Assange back in 2012. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was a lot, a lot to take in. I learned a lot about Pakistan that I didn't know. And it's just amazing how if you are disobedient, if you do not go along with what the U.S. wants, you can be marked very easily for regime change. And it's a, another case where initially a claim is made of a U.S. role and those who say it are accused of being conspiracy theorists and mocked. And then after the fact, you have documents proving the initial suspicion to be exactly correct. So it's another victory for anybody who was skeptical 
of U.S. government claims and who raises concerns about their role in ousting disobedient governments, in this case, Imran Khan in Pakistan. Right. Yeah, it was a great interview. And what's crazy is like we're not talking about like a small country like where the U.S. interferes, like Haiti, you know, all the countries across Latin America where the U.S. has interfered. This is like a nuclear armed power, one of the biggest countries in the world. And even there, U.S. influence is so strong that they can just tell the Pakistani ambassador, hey, if you don't oust this guy, you're going to have problems. And that can help get him ousted. It's, uh, it's amazing what the U.S. can manage to do. It is incredible. Usefulitis.substack.com or usefulitis.locals.com to sign up and get bonus content. Thanks. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 